Hey everybody, welcome to React Roundup. Today on the panel we have Charles Maxwood. Hey folks. And then we have Thomas. A lot. A lot. Sorry. That's fine. And I'm Chris Reyes. Today's to post. Thanks for listening. And today we're going to be talking about React best practices. And we're going to be working through a blog where they said 12 best practices you need to follow in 2019. I always love picking um, these ones apart. Why yeah, put so, that in there? <laughs> so I figured it'd be fun to go through it. So, I mean, it kind of relates to how to handle complexity in large projects. And I thought this was nice because it essentially works for small projects as well. So even if you're at home, this is for sure, and you're tinkering around, it's something to kind of take into mind and just kind of get these good habits built or, you know, just try at least. Are you a React developer who builds large applications for your organization? With NX, you can build your apps in a monorepo alongside your backend code and share code between React and other frameworks. You'll also get advanced code generation and automatically configured tooling like Cypress, Jest, and Prettier to simplify your workload. You'll build higher quality apps, share more across teams, and focus less time on configuration. Visit nx.dev react to get Narwhal's free open source set of extensible dev tools. The first one is keep components small and function specific. So in that case, yeah, you don't want these thousand line components where it's doing the whole app. You want to keep stuff modular as much as possible, I think, because it yeah. you know make your testing a little bit easier and it'll help onboard people. But there's obviously a ton to unpack here in terms of component size. How do you feel, Thomas? I think as far as com- like component size is separate from like, what do you have to keep in your head in order to work with this thing? That's kind of where I think of as far as like keeping components small, because you can just like take complexity and split it into 753 files. But in order to understand any one of those files, you still have to understand all of them. That's not what this is talking about. What this is really talking about is like, when you're working on this aspect of your thing, you only have to keep a tiny amount of stuff in your head at a time. Ideally, it's all in the same file, but maybe it's not. It doesn't really matter. But it's more about mental space than it is about like lines of code or whatever. This reminds me a little bit of the uh, single responsibility principle, as I've heard it explained yes. by Bob Martin. Yeah. Where essentially he talks about how the single responsibility principle isn't, this is the one thing that this class does. Instead, it's, all of this stuff is likely to change at the same time, and so it's part of the same concern. Right. And that kind of gets into the second point a little bit. Yeah. So I'm curious, though, how do you do this? I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, you know, make your components so you don't have to keep so much in your head that you can actually reason about it easily, right? But how do you actually manage your components to keep them small? Yeah, and this one, it's obviously some of this is going to be organizational specific. So if you have a ton of apps that are kind of relative, you know, you know what shared functionality these apps are going to be. And that's what's nice about these smaller components is that you can share them across projects. There is a slippery slope with sharing. Well, uh, that's, a, that's a separate point. But like one like technical specific that I found helpful is when it comes to like leaf nodes in your component tree, you know, the atomic unit of your components. Uh-huh. If you're using Redux, the project I'm working on is using Redux, don't use connect on every single component. Have some of your components that are just dumb components. They just take props, render those props, and that's it. 
and move some of the, the complexity out into a higher level thing that doesn't deal with the, the UI so much and deals more on data-oriented components versus UI-oriented components. And the point yeah. there is for testability and, and building. So like having a storybook open and being able to just see every single how this thing renders without having to worry about the data is accurate and the mocking and all this stuff. Yeah, this definitely has that presentational feel is where this will be kind of utilized a lot, which, you know, the reuse kind of leads us to our next point, which is point number two is reusability is important. So keep creation of new components to a minimum required. Yeah, so they want to kind of stick to that rule of the first point. This one, I, I don't want to say argue with, but there, <laughs> there's... There's a danger danger of trying to be too dry, you know, don't repeat yourself of like, okay, we're going to extract everything out into these super reusable things. It's going to be so flexible. And, but what that means is if, if you have one component that's super flexible, it's used everywhere. That means in order to, to maintain that thing, you have to test everything. (laughs) Yeah. That's like your entire application stack is is boiled down into this one little button component. If you make a single change here, you have to retest everything in the whole universe. You could break everything. I think of this as like organizations of people kind of thing, right? Where it's like, look, this is your job. This is your role in in the program. This is your role in the company. And if it's outside that role, then we need to figure out whose job it is to do that. What what role it falls under and then hand that off. So it could wind up on this component, but it may be, be- we may be better off creating a new role or a new component to manage that. And yeah. so if it doesn't neatly fit in there, right, or you have to make a major overhaul on it to do it, it still may be worth it, but think hard about it before you actually go for it. Yeah, there are like some yellow flags to watch out for. Like if you are wanting to add extra props that are specific, those props are specific to a product, <laughs> and or if you're putting a bunch of like if statements, yeah, like oh, one yeah. thing. You, once you do that, you know it's time to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one thing a pattern I saw recently is passing you know device equals mobile or or device equals desktop as a prop to and then having ifs throughout the the place doing completely different rendering inside of components. Like okay, wait, wait, why can't we just have a desktop component and a mobile component yeah. so and test them individually? Yep. Fewer props. <laughs> yeah, I like now, that idea. One other thing that I've seen with mostly in static analysis tools is they've picked up on, hey, these two functions have the same, basically the same structure, right? And so they look very similar, but if you look at them, they're doing completely different things with completely different things being handed to them. <laughs> right. And the temptation is, is to combine them because they're structurally very similar. But the difference is, is that going back to the idea of the single responsibility principle is that the one is going to change before the other one does, right? You're going to go work on this code over here and this is going to have to change and the other one won't. And so in that case, it's another guideline for dry, right? Is that these are not going to change at the same time. And so we don't want to have a lot of churn on this particular component because it's going to cause problems because now we have to keep in mind, as Thomas pointed out on the first idea was, you know, now you have to keep in your head all of the things that use this thing. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. I mean, so in terms of this one, to sum up is 
you know, the pros are it does save time and it gives you that consistent look if you're able to leverage a UI component in this instance. The drawbacks are is this component can really get huge quick if things start changing and you start modifying it for different use cases like the mobile and desktop version and you have to keep things into consider. Yeah, I just saw the next point is actually consolidate duplicate code, dry your code. So oh man, this is like... <laughs> we're already into it. Yeah, we're good, yeah. The code example they're using here is like an anti-pattern I've seen stated as an anti-pattern by people who should, would know so many times of like adding extra complexity in order to reduce lines of code. So now there's more mental overhead just to what reduce a little bit of reading yeah, yeah I, again it goes back to it goes back to that same idea right this component needs to i don't resize images and this other component that that in a completely different part of the code needs to resize image dry that up right if you're resizing <laughs> the same way you're doing the same exact thing fine you know dry your code but yeah if if it's got a different concern yeah this this is not a good idea yeah, I, I tend to set myself a little rule where if it's happening twice, it's okay. But you know, when you get to that three point, then it's time to consider like, okay, should this be abstracted? Do you guys have a rule like that, or is, uh, does it just depend? Sebastian Markbedge, like I've known him since the Mutuals days. He's now one of the React guys, and he he did a great talk about this at JSConf a few years ago that I'll have to link to, where he talked about this exact thing at way more depth and nuance than I'm capable of. <laughs> and like at <laughs> Facebook scale, they're like, what's better to, to have an abstraction earlier on so you repeat things less or to have like literally the exact same line of code thousands of times across hundreds of files. Well, he argues that it's actually better to have kind of an idiomatic pattern that may not be dry as far as like don't repeating your don't repeat yourself but you're able to refactor it later whereas if you abstract mm -hmm. too soon you're kind of stuck in that abstraction and it constrains your your way of thinking in ways that he That's explains a in a better way yeah. than i can <laughs> yeah yeah it is interesting because i think like thomas said is you know it adds a complexity if you see an abstraction that might not be named well might take more time to go figure out what it's actually doing versus just having the code in two places. Well, and I so, use, dare I say, I, I know it's, it's a four letter word. Okay. It's a seven letter word. It's a four letter comments. And so sometimes <laughs> I'll put a comment in there and I use comments to leave notes to myself. Like um, I use like fix me all caps. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> call and then, you know, like I know this isn't right. Or a to-do is another one that I use. And so I'll put I'm, a to-do note sorry. on it. And it's basically, <laughs> yeah, people hate comments. But I'll put a to-do in this basically says, is this the same as this other thing, right? If, if I'm going to be considering whether or not to consolidate it. And then I'll actually go think about it. Because on the spur of the moment, if I feel like I have to make a decision, I'm probably not going to make the wrong one, right one. And so if I can take a little bit of time and go, okay, what are the implications for this code? Maybe go work on something else and then come back to it and go, okay, now that my brain's kind of chewed on it in the back of my head for a while, I can make a call. Yeah. I love that use of comments. Comments are kind of kind of kind of kind of go to different extremes. I've seen where like every line of code has a comment, and I've seen code where they're just like they work hard to make sure there are zero comments in there. 
What you're talking about, like the fix me and the to-dos, that's a different kind of comment. I love those. Flaggingness of like, we decided not to implement this thing that is probably going to come up later. Let's just flag it as a to-do or a to think about later. Yeah. But kind of it, it can be a yellow flag, not necessarily a red flag. If there are too many comments in your code, that might be a smell that it's too complex and needs to be rethought. The flip side, however, is if you look through the source code of React Core itself, there are some that have, there's like 80% comments and a tiny amount of code in those files. But it the comments there are not describing the implementation or technically how it works. They're describing the why, the concepts mm-hmm. that you're holding in your head of why it's done this way and how to reason about it. So when you're reading this code, you need these comments in your head at the same time in order to make sense of it in context. Right. Yeah, so point number four was comment only when necessary. <laughs> and one, one of the, just to reiterate. But oh my one gosh, of the points, timing. Yeah, so one of the, po- one of the uh, things they point out is you avoid the potential of you know, your comments meaning something different than your code. Because what I used to love comments when I was in college because you know, I was learning how to program and I didn't know what I was doing. So mm-hmm. I brought myself these little messages. But then I found out as I changed things, I wouldn't change comments and it would be rough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So that's kind of where this point is coming is if you have minimal comments, you got to make sure you update them or it's gonna, it could lead to something very bad. Yeah. One solution yeah. I've seen to that is to just to be careful with how you name things. So like naming a variable, something that describes what the contents of the variable is and why it exists instead of just like the letter A or whatever. Even if it's an index, just like we all kind of know that I means index, but how hard is it to write out the word index that you can read yeah. it like a person? Yeah. yeah, I was guilty of that first. And I met a senior programmer that said pretty much that sentence to me and since that point. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's a good point. You know, and you know, since then I see people abbreviate for account ACCT and I'm like, well, you know, we have so much space. Just, just Just typing that hard. Yeah. Which this is a perfect segue. We've covered comments pretty well. So point number five is name the component. Hang on. I have a quick question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. And that is, have you, any of you used any of the, I think there are two or three libraries out there that let you actually write inline tests in the comments. That's neat. Yeah, I've never ha- done that. I've just done JS doc, really. I haven't done that, but I, I used to do, like, in my node code, I would do, like, an if at the bottom, like, if module.id three equals dot, then I'd put the tests there. So I could just execute any random node file, and it would just run the tests. Mm-hmm. But that was back in the day. I don't know, the the right way to do testing in node, I, I mostly stick in the browser these days. Yeah, I'm trying to find the name of the library that I ran across, but... Yeah, you essentially just put, it's like an at T and then you can put a one-liner test in there. And so what that does is if that test fails when it runs, then it forces you to update the comment, right? Because it doesn't do what you expected anymore. And I thought that was really, really interesting way of forcing yourself to, okay, this this isn't right. (laughs) Got to fix that. Yeah, I like the code locality aspect of it, but I don't like the yeah. the syntax highlighting nightmare that that. <laughs> yeah, like so I'm trying yeah. to I'm trying to picture in my head, and I could see it getting out of hand. It would be pretty cool if it was like a call out to a testing file of some sort. So, like, if you know, but I do see the benefit there for sure, because then it does force you to pay attention to your test too. <laughs> yep. 
Cool. So point number five is name the component after the function. I guess for here, they're wanting your component to be yeah, like the rule of thumb is table. Yeah. you read the name of this component, you should be able to guess what the heck is this and why does it exist. If it's just like component five, like <laughs> we know you're, you're, you're fired. <laughs> just like go. <laughs> Fix your comments and get out. <laughs> <laughs> but no, this one you, seems obvious to me, right? Is name it after yeah. what it is. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, this can get kind of wacky though when when some people kind of want to make things too generic and some people want to make things a little too specific and kind of the, the golden path is kind of right in the middle. Yeah. By the way, the point. library I was thinking of for inline comments is called Saul. Oh, How do you spell that? S A U L. I just put a link in the show notes or in the oh, chat. Cool. Anyway, not to derail us, but yeah. Yeah. I mean the whole naming aspect when you list, I think it's, pragmatic programmer and clean code and all that stuff. That's such a big topic. And as yeah. much as that has been preached and stuff, it's still just one of those things where if you can really get naming down, that's such a big benefit to the code base. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's a good point. Like as an aside, if you are a professional in any field, it's worth reading the, the things that have been written about your profession by experts in the profession. Like, even if they don't like the language, like, you can b- learn from expert Java programmers how to write JavaScript better. It's okay. Yeah, and those are two books that, no matter what, yeah, they're just, they're excellent. And they, it's amazing because they're not new books. They've been around and to this day just still hold such good meaning. Cool. Yeah. So uh, I think that kind of segues into our next point where use capitals for component names. So this is kind of a given. And if you're going to use the JSX extension for your React files, I think this is required or you might, it might not compile, I think. Yeah. I think I could re- rename this command to don't abuse the developer tools. Don't do weird, unexpected things. <laughs> when React was a, a new thing and JSX was a new thing, I used to, I had a few weird experiments just totally abusing the JSX implementation to do kind of cool little tr- tricky things. Just like, don't do stuff like that. Just like <laughs> do normal stuff in a normal way. It's okay. Put the key on your array list or it's going to yell at you. <laughs> yeah. Don't surprise people. Like they shouldn't be delighted and unexpected when they read. No, they just want to know how it works and move on with their day. Like don't use getters. Like getters in JavaScript, it's a wonderful feature, but it's super weird and unexpected. Like maybe don't do that. Like yeah, getters and me, set, like the get and set keyword, yeah. that's a thing. Darby dragons, just warning. I think there's something to be said here just for following a convention, right? Whether you have a, right. an official kind of style guide or in this case, it, it's more just along the lines of, hey, these are kind of community standards that we've all adopted as far as how these things go together. And so if yeah. you get a new person looking at your code, they can look at it and they can say, Oh, it's it's capitalized. It's camel case. It must be a component. Exactly. Whatever. Exactly. Yeah, I, I love conventions. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love 
You can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. What I love about conventions is it lets you work at a higher level. You don't have to constantly be testing the waters like you're walking around on, on quicksand. At any moment, the ground's going to fall out from under you. <laughs> just like Someone's going to yell at you for not doing your variable right. <laughs> yeah, you can just assume that the basics are going to stay the same and you can focus on the, the grand design that you're building together as a team. You don't have to worry about, oh, uh, am I going to destroy the world if I accidentally named, like, oh, just be normal. Basically, for me, it boils down to not so much what can I assume about this code. I can just walk into it. And because of those assumptions, I don't have to interrupt myself, right? So I don't have to stop. The example in the blog post is like select button, you know, and it it shows it lowercase versus uppercase. I don't have to look at select button and have that interrupt go through my head. What is select button? Right. I can right. just assume because of it that it, you know, because of the capitalization, instead of going back and doing the homework and going, oh, this is a component. You know, I, I, I don't I don't have to take that step, right? No thinking yeah. necessary, no guessing right. necessary. Just yeah, yeah if you force me to think about it, that's where the slowdown comes in. And that's that's the problem. Right. It's yeah, like I, putting speed bumps in <laughs> the road on the There highway. goes the undercarriage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> too fast. Yeah. And I think I'm jumping ahead, but this is where tools are your best friend. Yes. ESLint and Prettier. Get those configured, have them auto format and save in your VS code. And, you know, just so it does reduce that idea of thinking, you know, where you you can focus on the higher level things and not be down the weeds of how it works. Get hooks, like a pre-commit hook so that, you know, or a a pre-push hook so you can't accidentally push to master or you can't accidentally, like, shoot yourself in the face. Like just some basic safety. Man, now I want to write a script that goes through the source code and uh, decapitalizes everything. <laughs> yeah, I have a nice VS code extension where I can, it lets you choose camel, uppercase, Pascal, all these fancy cases oh, nice. I never even heard of. Yeah, it's nice. So I think that's kabob the, the case. cover of that. Yeah, kebab case. <laughs> kebab so case. That's my favorite casing. Yeah, it just makes me hungry. <laughs> it's lowercase dash separated. Yeah. So, uh, and then is wait kebab and it, that might be snake too, right? Or no, is snake, snake is underscore. Yeah. Okay. Separated. Word separated with underscores, all lowercase. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So now the next kind of does go back to the traditional kind of ideas from what we mentioned earlier, but separate stateful aspects from rendering. So. Again, here, they're kind of talking about having peer components and components that handle stateful logic, which is fair. I mean, this is kind of, you know, and yeah. they talk about hooks, you know, and what the benefits of hooks and kind of being able to separate now and functional components. Yeah, this is going to be a much bigger deal with a concurrent mode and suspense, where now you can really like separate all the loading states and c- extract all the loading modes from all your components and, and encapsulate all that stuff using suspense at a high, at a different level that's product specific instead of component specific. There's going to be a paradigm shift for sure. I mean just yeah, like hooks is a paradigm a shift. It's going to be yeah, but it's going to be fun. It's going to be interesting yeah. to do. I think yep. overall everything's getting better. It's just hard. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, There's that, that learning curve at first. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, they make a good point. One of React's best practices is to keep your stateful data logic separate from your rendering stateless logic. So this is one of those ones when you're kind of learning React just to kind of drill in your head. But with things changing, again, there's going to be a paradigm shift. But right. this is just an always a good idea to have in mind. It's one of those things that we've seen come up in, I mean, Ruby on Rails did it. And then a bunch of others did it where they had that separation of concerns and people were just able to move faster. Right. You know, this isn't a new idea. But sometimes it's hard to do if you don't have a really strong convention for it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to be said for keeping your options open, get, having maximum flexibility. Yeah. But the trade-off there is speed. Like, if, if you're going wide, you're not going deep. If you're exploring all the possibilities, you're not focusing in and really crushing one thing. Yep. Yeah. Well, cool. I think we're ready to move on to point eight, which is code should execute as expected and be testable. Yes. Like if I check out your NPM package, if I get clone your thing, I should be able to run NPM I semicolon NPM run test and it should all be green. If it's not, I'm deleting the folder and moving on. (laughs) (laughs) Fix your comments and get out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. But, But yeah, I mean, it's one of those things too with naming. This happens too, where you know, if you have a component called date picker, and then you go and it's completely something different, and it doesn't execute as you thought it was going to. It's it's a red flag for sure. Yeah, this is where things like Storybook are so useful. It's essentially like a like visual unit tests where you can just instantly boot this thing up and just look at the components, how they render, noodle around with them a little bit, and that's it. No booting up a database, no connecting to a server. It's just like it should just work. And it is good. I like it. (laughs) Well, the thing is, is code should execute as expected and be testable. To me, I mean, obviously, we want working code. I mean, that's just kind of a given. And for it to be testable and to be tested, you know, to your point, as soon as you pick up somebody else's code, it's nice to have that reassurance that, oh, look, if I change something here, it's going to tell me I broke it. Yes. And if you destroy that certainty, it's like, I'm going to start questioning everything. Like, if I can't trust the tests, then I can't trust the implementation. I can't trust the CSS. I can't trust your code comments. I can't trust that there's not, like, some extra NPM module. I can't trust that it's not doing, like, a a dynamic import and bringing in 13 gigabytes of extra who knows what the heck. Like, it just kind of, it's a slippery slope. And it works the other way, too. If if the tests are all green, then that gives me confidence in not just the state of the code, but the state of you as a person. <laughs> this, <laughs> I, can, I can trust you. I can, I'm more comfortable and confident and willing to work with you on the next thing. And everything you've ever touched, I feel more confident in just by that, that the kind of the, um, the Midas touch of the, the green test. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the difference here is like my car is pretty complicated the way that it works, right? A little bit, but uh, but I'm I'm pretty mm-hmm. I'm pretty used to it just working, right? So that said, I can get pretty comfortable with hey, this code's going to work, right? So if it works, you know, I npm install it. I didn't even look at the code or at the tests. You know, I can be pretty confident in the way that it works. But if I have to go modify it or write code against it. That's where things get a little bit okay. I yeah. don't know if I'm doing this the way that is expected. And that's where the tests really come in. 
Yeah. So even when writing your own code, we kind of focus on third party, which is extremely beneficial. But when writing your own code, you know, the article mentions to keep it next to your component with the dot test extension, just so yeah. you know where to look and make sure it works. And that kind of segues into the next point nine, which is all files related to any one component should be in a single folder, according to them. Now, this is kind of, you know, a little bit of opinion thing. I know I like this, but I also sometimes like my directories structured by, you know, responsibility. Get out so, your pitchforks, folks. Yeah, I know. So this is interesting. I agree in principle, like, so say I'm working on, you know, the cell component of a table of this massively complicated thing of like, it should be one step to go from this render function to every single thing that makes this render function render. I should, it should be one click to go to the tests, one click to go to the CSS, one click to go to the parent, etc. Like, I don't care if it's the same folder. I don't care how you make that happen. If I can command click something to jump to it, that's good. If I can click on the folder in the thing and it's in the same folder with the same, you know, prefix, you know, except dot styles or whatever the heck, I don't care as long as it's discoverable without thinking or guessing <laughs> or much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when yeah. you're in a large complex project, the structure of your folders is one of the most important aspects because when you're onboarding new people, you want to be able to navigate it. If you have a services folder that's just like 3,000 files deep and you no. need to find something, you know, like then you just... Clean <laughs> up your comments. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going <laughs> to jump in, you're going to have a mental breakdown and you'll never go back into the services folder again, you know? <laughs> I, I was going to say, you got to rename that folder to junk drawer. <laughs> I, I, I just, yeah. we have one in my house, right? And it's where everything ends up when it doesn't have a home or when my kids don't want to put it in its home. And so... It's the same thing here, right? If you have 3,000 things in your services folder, <laughs> you know, you, you really have created a junk drawer. I don't know where else to put this, so I'm going to call it a service and I'm going to drop it here. And the yeah. reality is, is instead, if there's a service that's used by a particular component, it's not shared or anything like that, yeah, put it next to the component and then name it something that indicates that it's part of that component or put it in the same folder as they're putting here. But yeah, yeah then you have that indication that it's like, hey, all this stuff goes together and forms that. And then if there are things that are shared, then you can figure out where the home is for that. And then, you know, you can have some convention for it. And if you have a convention for it, then it's like, okay, well, I can't find it here. It must be shared. And so it's, it's over in this other place. Or, you know, I pull it in and I named it something like blah, blah service or, you know, or blah, blah shared component or something yeah. like that. And so slight- then I know that it's, it lives over there. As a slight aside, there's an interesting technology. So at, at Facebook and in their non-JavaScript projects like um, native apps, Android and iOS and stuff, they have a, a, a build system called Buck. And what that lets you do is it lets you whitelist what things are allowed to see which components or which folders full of things. And so on a per component basis, you can say this is only accessible to these three products because they have this, you know, giant mono repo with all the code in one repo. And so that lets you kind of constrain the complexity so that if I change this one component, I don't have to worry about some random product I've never heard of breaking. Mm -hmm. It's kind of an explicit contract. We don't really have anything like that in, in the JavaScript world. I guess NPM is the closest thing, but you don't want to split everything out into separate MVM. Anyway, that's 
that's a whole nother conversation. But just the <laughs> basics of just the basic concept of of certainty, like uh, and least surprise, and how many steps does it take to learn the absolute minimum necessary to understand a thing? Well, and that translates yeah. perfectly into the next point. But before we move on, I wanted to point out as a caution and service folder. I think you you guys talked about this in the React architecture episode a couple episodes back. Someone had mentioned once something goes into the services folder, it's kind of forgotten and not updated. Or it's just, you know, it does become that junk drawer. So I think the idea of having like a best practice, like, okay, like this kind of function has been used in three spots. It's time to kind of abstract it and move. Kind of like we were talking about with the dry practice is kind of a nice rule of thumb, I think. But everyone, you know, it's going to vary based on, uh, you know, opinion and use case. It all depends on the specifics. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, when we extract it, this is the other thing that people run into is they they think, okay, well, I'm going to create this function out there in the ether that does the thing. And what I like to do is I actually like to create like a full-on service. If you're, you know, what we're doing kind of reactive style in React and, you know, components are sort of a stand-in for classes in some ways. It's not a perfect analogy, but you get the idea. And so I like services also to be kind of a stand-in for kind of a vanilla object. And so I create the vanilla object that's a service and then I tell it, this service is in charge of this functionality. And that way, if I'm tempted to combine something else into that service that doesn't fit that concern, then I go, yeah, but then I'm using the image resize component to monkey with audio. That's a bad idea. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the services folder, it probably could end up being its own episode. (laughs) 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 To jump back into Thomason's mention about Buck, their next point, point 10, is use tools like Bit, or I guess Bits. I've never used Bit, but I guess it's a tool you can utilize for... um, I've never heard of it. I don't even know what it is. Yeah, I tried to Google and look at it. It's just something I'm guessing that, you know, it's like a static analysis and you can use it to uh, reuse code. But I want to use this point to kind of talk about what we mentioned earlier. ESLint, Prettier, VS Code, configuring. You got to take advantage of those tools because they really do make your life a lot better. Yes. And tooling in general is getting better. Facebook and some other companies are starting to work on like automated, like artificial intelligence tools to fix common bugs automatically. Once you've done coding for enough times, you kind of see the same concept of a bug happen a million times like oh you know it's an off by one error or whatever and they're starting to to recognize these bugs and come up with tools to fix them in an automated way for example github has these bots now that are crawling and looking for security holes and are automatically sending a pull request with zero human involvement that just patches you to the very next hotfix that fixes the security hole. So if you do nothing, if you like opt into this, you'll get occasionally some pull requests from robots of like, hey, there's a security hole, just you know, one click to pull in the, the fix. Like tooling, do not underestimate the power and, and leverage that tooling is going to have now and in the future. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's just one of those things too, when you like a style guide or like when you use the Airbnb with ESLint and you're just kind of leveling up, just going through and reading those rules or any style guide, sorry. I didn't say anything. Out loud. Yeah. 
but you know, it, it does kind of give you that reassurance of like, okay, this is the way people are doing it. And it kind of just gives you a guide as you're learning, I think is a nice practice. Yeah, totally agreed. The amount of time and energy and mental effort and anguish and drama in my life, just arguing about crap that doesn't matter. Like, yeah. are we going to indent with spaces or tabs? <laughs> are we going to yeah. do semicolons or not? And like, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if this fits here, but this might be a good point to argue for TypeScript and how that could be leveraged as a tool to help cut down on bugs. And yeah, there is a bit of a learning curve, but like you said, those kind of bugs that do happen, you know, TypeScript reduces that by sending types. Yeah. Let's move on to the next point. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I do highly recommend that every React developer should at least be able to read TypeScript code, even if they choose not to write it. Yeah. So the next point is use snippet libraries, which kind of relates to what we talked about. Yeah, there's... You can get these and VS Code extensions, and it's just nice. You you know, when you go to do a new class, you type in CLS, and it kind of has a boilerplate for you. So yeah, that's one's pretty straightforward. I like but to again, build my own. Those are very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I equate it a lot to like the, the Emacs key bindings, which is something that I'm very familiar with. It just allows me to move faster because I'm used to the way that it works. So you just have other shortcuts that you kind of automatically put in, and it removes that friction. Of course, then if you use somebody else's setup, then you... <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but I think as a principle, investing like time and energy into your own development flow and building things that are unique to you that make yeah. you move faster is time well spent, highly leveraged. Yeah. And this could even be used as a CLI tool, kind of like what Angular does, where in React, if you do have a common thing and you go to spin up a new component, just kind of take the time, build it, and have it create a test file so you're forced to kind of follow good practices. Yeah, that's good. Which, yeah, which this, you know, we kind of already hit this pretty hard follow linting rules. This is the final point of the article and break up lines that are too long. So, you know, we all seem pretty strong proponents for linting. I don't think there's too much more to add to that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, use Prettier. Try not to care too much about the configuration of Prettier. Yeah, just hit save and let it do all the work and be, it has consistent in your team. If they're on board, it'll all, everyone's code will look similar, so. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. At this point, yeah, I think we're ready for picks, guys. Why don't you go ahead, Thomas? I have a great one. Uh, TCR, so Kent Beck. He talked all about test-driven development back in the day. And one thing he's been experimenting with, I mean, I guess it's been a year ago now, is uh, test and commit or revert. It's a loop that it runs your tests. If your tests pass, it commits just locally. If your tests fail, it reverts back to the last green. I played around with this. What he says about it, I hated the idea so much I had to try it. And it's like, I felt that deep in my gut, in deep in my soul of like, oh, I hate that so much. I have to try it. It was the most glorious. I have never worked so efficiently in my life. It was like a game that I was playing with myself but what's great is like I can just walk away and I know when I walk back, everything's green. Uh, no matter how horribly I screw anything up, it'll be green as soon as I hit save. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. All right, Charles, why don't you go ahead with yours? Yeah, I'm going to go fast because I have to jump off for Ruby Rogues in a couple minutes. Yeah, I have two. I've been picking Christmas movies for the past little while. I'm going to shout out about the book. 
Um, you can go pick it up if you're going to be looking for a job or you just want some job mobility, go find it. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. So the two Christmas movies that I'm going to pick this time, and I'm just going to be doing this for the next few weeks. The first one is White Christmas. Now, you may be familiar with the song. The song is in the movie. However, that's not where the song came from. The song is originally from the movie Holiday Inn. And those are my two picks. Uh, both have Bing Crosby in them. Holiday Inn also has Fred Astaire in it. And so, yeah, lots of singing and dancing and you know all the stuff that you would kind of expect. A super fun movies. Both of them are. White Christmas is Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye. And Danny Kaye is super fun to watch. If you go find a movie with him in it, just watch it. It's so fun. They're, they're fun movies. Anyway, great, great movies. So if you're looking for kind of that old-timey feel, Holiday Inn was made in 1942. I think it was originally black and white. White Christmas was made in 1954, I think. And so, yeah, anyway, go check them out. They're great movies if you're looking for some movies to watch. And they're all family-friendly. So that's a plus. Cool. All right, I'll go quick. So my first one isn't very cool. It's the VS Code ESLint extension. That is testing. Cool. <laughs> Take the time, set it up, have it run autosave, and just be happy. It's totally worth it. My second is a documentary that just came out called Playing With Fire. I really like that financial independence movement and really want to retire early, but you know, we'll see how that goes. But it's about a guy who had, I think, a pretty awesome job and wanted to retire early and walked away from it and tried to figure it out. So I've only seen the trailer. I follow Two Frugal Dudes on their podcast, nice. which is a great podcast. Check it out. And this doc is uh, just came out, so I'm looking forward to watching it this week. And I hope everybody else, you know, takes a chance too. All right, sounds good. All right, well, thank you everybody for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Good night, everybody. Max out, everybody. Clean up your code, (laughs) (laughs) your comments, and get out. (laughs) Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more.